podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of my 2023 Rugby World Cup preview series. We changed things up today by lining out with a true South African bomb squad. Later on, I'll be joined by Harry Jones of the Roar Rugby Pod. But first, I sit down with two members of the Rugby Bits podcast. So without any further ado, please welcome on Talo, Talo Sutu and Sean Lilford. Thanks for coming on, lads. Uh, hi. No, Pleasure sure. to be invited. Thank you so much. No problem. It's good to have you on then. I, I start every podcast the exact same way. Um, South Africa come in as reigning champions, but high expectations. But as a fan, without those expectations, are are you excited? I'll start with yourself, Sean. Yes, uh, I, I am. It's really, South Africa is a very, or well, Springbok fans have had a very interesting uh life it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster the last uh the last say five ten years it's we've had some some good showings and bad showing we've had probably the worst the worst sort of showing in in our history um and then we went on and won the world cup in 2019 so there's always hope for us we always believe we can do it i think that's one one of the great things but um you know anything any sign of uh, of things going badly you'll see everyone climbing on with i told you so but uh yeah, it's uh, it's good. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, we're going to be chatting about the squad and and whatnot. There's, I think, things are going to be changed. Like uh, Rassi Rasmus changed things in 2019 by winning the World Cup after being in charge for two years, and this year Jacques Ninov is going to change it up by announcing a very interesting squad, which seems unbalanced. But let's see how it goes. We'll get into that later, but certainly um, imbalanced is. Kind of a good word to describe it anyway. But <laughs> Tyler, are you excited for the upcoming World Cup? No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's easily going to be one of the most competitive World Cups. Um, yeah, we were talking just before the, um, the 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 podcast about the fact that there's probably three groups in which you can argue that at least three or maybe even four teams can can make it out of those groups. So that's obviously going to be very entertaining. It's it's a nice sort of meeting of, you know, the established powers sort of going down and a lot of like the tier two teams going up. So like, there's going to be a lot of excitement there. I think there's going to be a few surprises. There's like even a, a pretty good possibility of a Fiji or Georgia Samoa making all the way to the semifinal, which is fantastic. And then, yeah, as a fan, um, as a American fan, I'm actually going to be at the World Cup. So I'm very excited about that. I'll watch the Scotland game. Um, we were <laughs> the WhatsApp group of friends that are going to World Cup. Obviously, had their own reactions to the to the news, and we some are asking for refunds because they're not going to see Pollard and Kanyaan. But yeah, I think all in all, I mean, France obviously will. I'm sure they'll have a good party, and yeah, I think we are going to be treated to some great rugby for those two months. Yeah, it, pr- it promises to be great, but maybe don't ask the refunds yet because they are on the standby list. Those lads, you, you never know. <laughs> You never, you never know. Never know. Um, but it's it's weird, like coaching and coaching changes is kind of in the theme of this World Cup coming in as well, between you know, coaches who will depart, coaches who departed a year ago, and as many Irish listeners are aware of, Shaq Nienaber will return to Ireland and head to Leinster this time after the tournament. And 
Sean, I'll start with yourself because you did a brilliant podcast on the Erasmus Lean Arbor era. So would you mind taking us through your thoughts on their last, what was it, five years or so, six years? Yeah, the, the most important thing for me um, that has come out of this is we've got a bit of succession planning and continuity. Um, a lot of countries, or not a lot, but a few countries are on like a World Cup to World Cup campaign. They clean house and uh, and then you kind of start from scratch. And South Africa fell into that cycle and it was hurting. And it was evident there was no continuity. It was really, it was challenging. And then when... Rasini Naba. Irasa, we should call him that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when when Rasi came in as director of rugby, and then obviously, you know, I, I was pretty happy. We were all pretty stoked about it because uh, um, we didn't have a director of rugby position. And I thought that was something that we needed to be doing, but also liked his outlook and, and what he'd been doing. Then announced that he was going to be like DOR and head coach, which is challenging. Obviously, you some something's going to drop somewhere but the man like he had very very clear setup on what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it and it seemed to work pretty well I think it was a great opportunity for him to come in um, or for anyone to come in because things were so bad at that time that you essentially could make up how you wanted to do things and what you wanted to execute which which is a good and bad thing. Like if it goes, if it goes badly, you know, you're given enough rope, you'll hang yourself, but um, you can take it and run, you know? And that was the big thing. And things started to happen. There was continuity. There was talk about like uh, internally things being players, uh, coaches and assistant coaches being moved in and, 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 and brought into the system. And then when Jacques Ninova was announced, it was all basically coming good. You know, there was continuity. It was the same, it was the same conversation. I call it language. It was the same language happening within the team, the same focus, the the same kind of foundation. That for the players must have been incredible. Um, and you know, then that happens, then we've got so many of the same assistant coaches and, and management staying in that process. And it looks now that one of the guys internally will take over in the future. So that is possibly the best thing that could have happened from SA rugby and from the Springboks point of view. But then there's so much more trust um, that was put in players. It's there's a big thing about the team, like the family. One thing we've seen, like if you've seen the um, documentary chasing the sun, it was about the family. It was about like the team and, and players and individuals and the humans came first, which has, uh, which has been amazing. And it's been incredible and so happy that it worked out this way. I won't lie. I won't lie. Well, there, there is a World Cup in the middle of it. So like you, if you weren't happy, it would be an entirely different question. But yeah. Pala, heading into their, their second World Cup as coaches, how do you feel this era would be remembered by not only yourself, but the, the general South African rugby <clears throat> public? Yeah, look, I think, you know, sort of picking up the story from where Sean left it off. I mean, 2019, we won a regular cup. We win a Regular Cup also with a team that is probably, you know, at the start of its um, run instead of it being like at the end of its run. Because I think even Rassi has said that we won the World Cup. Maybe we were probably aiming more for the 2023 Rugby World Cup than the 2019 one. So, you know, the age profile of the team was fantastic at, the, at, at that time. You know, a lot of the players were still in their mid-20s. Some were still about to reach their peak, you know, most of the team that played in the final would basically be, you know, 
available for 2023 and then obviously we would have new additions coming into it so i think it's and you know obviously we couldn't play rugby in 2020 which i think is a big factor with which has thrown i think a lot out obviously the whole COVID pandemic but i think it also threw out or it also i think maybe allowed expectations to maybe percolate a bit too much for South African fans because at least for myself and uh, I'm sure I'm speaking for some others, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is actually going to be an era where the Springboks are, you know, winning about 75 to 80% of their test matches and are, you know, great at home, great away, like winning a rugby championship or two as well. And yeah, just establishing themselves as the number one team for at least the majority of the four-year cycle. But yeah, it hasn't really worked out like that. It's been a, it's been an interesting um uh, era to you know balance because I think number one the going back to your question it pretty much hinges on the rugby world cup whether it's a, a huge success or not because you know there has been once we won the Lions the British Irish Lions series there's been basically this plan for project 2023 and it's you know there's been a bit of you know rotation and trying new things and obviously almost like implementing new game plan and you know, rotation of squads playing, you know, a second team, a complete second team against Wales and Australia now this year. So it's all been, you know, we're planning for the Rugby World Cup. So with doing that, that means then that, you know, you kind of, at least in the African context, have to win it or at least come very, very close to doing that. So I think that will be almost a big thing in the Ninaba legacy because when you look at win percentages and all that sort of stuff, um, Ninaba's win percentages, I think, is at about 60 or 61% or maybe 62 now, which, you know, is just about average for most of the good Springbok coaches in the last, like, 30 years. Um, Nick Mallet has over 70%, Jake White's on 67 Rassi's on 68 Peter De Villiers, I think, is on 65 or 66 as well. So, you know, on the bare numbers, Ninoba's a good coach. Uh, World Cup obviously makes him obviously a remembered, a great coach, you know, on history. But I think a loss and, you know, if it's a quarterfinal loss or even, you know, the horror of a group stage exit, I think that won't be remembered too well. But it also comes with this dynamic between Ninoba and Rassi Erasmus. <laughs> Because obviously, Rassi's been the director of rugby. He's been very involved in the team. You know, he's been very active, as all of social media knows about, you know, his thoughts and what he thinks about games and stuff. So it's so interesting. I don't think the average, you know, non, you know, rugby pits followers or whatever, Sarakin fan, actually knows much about Jacques Minaba. I mean, I think everyone, if you ask, you know, the common person on the street, they probably think Rassi's still the coach. So it, I think it's just an interesting legacy that he'll leave. And he's going to almost go almost into the night to, to go join Leinster quietly, like, you know, almost win or lose, maybe more so if they lose, because he almost wasn't sort of the person at the front, you know, who might, you know, take, you know, all the shots if the team loses or not. And it's going to be, it'll be interesting then seeing him in another environment and seeing how he goes there, because I think, you know, working with Rassi Rasmus and Rassi sort of taking that, I guess, Eddie Jones or Jose Mourinho approach of taking a, a lot of the bullets so that you can sort of preserve the team. It'll be interesting to see how, you know, he's remembered. But I think the Springboks have put a lot of their eggs into the World Cup basket. You know, we haven't, you know, had a really a great run as like a top team, really. We haven't won a rugby championship. We won the British Irish Lions series, which is obviously 
a big priority. But yeah, I think it's, you know, a World Cup win or at least, uh, you know, going pretty far, like either a close loss in the semi-final or a close loss in the final. Or if we lose the quarterfinal or even earlier, then yeah, I don't think it'll be seen as a successful error. That's the, the thick nature of such a competitive <laughs> World Cup that's common, isn't it? Like Because you, it's the same both kind of for Ireland and France where they have a grand slam under their belts, but if they lose a quarterfinal, it's like, well, it was all for naught. But let's, we're, I'm kind of doing this as a two-part podcast, so it kind of allows me to ask you a different type of question. And I do really want to touch on the URC. Um, like we're two seasons into this, I went down to the South African experiment, but obviously the Kings and Cheaters were in before. Um, but like, I love the league personally. Maddie in my rugby circle feel the same way. So starting with yourself, Tano, what's your thoughts on not only the, the URC as a concept, but also its impact, be it positive or negative, on South African rugby? Yeah. So, yeah, I think when the... Look, I think in terms of a history lesson... South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and then Argentina have a very, <laughs> I think, funny relationship because you know you have New Zealand, well, you have South Africa. They obviously have you know the biggest population in terms of a rugby watching population, so they bring sort of all the broadcasting money. They have you know super sports, and they you know I think the money comes from that. New Zealand's obviously the most dominant team. And then, you know, Australia and South Africa almost have like this like love-hate relationship in some ways of, you know, you know, we don't really respect each other sometimes. We love love and hate each other, but we're actually quite similar. Like our records are quite similar. And obviously we're all trying to almost like see ourselves as the, you know, as the team that's next to New Zealand in terms of like the hierarchy in things on and off the field. But basically that relationship broke down, but there was always a threat of South Africa joining Europe because of, you know, the time zones and everything. And that's always been something that was hanging over Super Rugby, at least for at least the last 10 years, if not longer. So, and the biggest reasons was obviously time zones, which is, you know, you if you're watching a Super Rugby game, you know, there's those like long haul Saturdays of starting at about four to or 6 a.m. and going all the way to about 11 p.m. with the, the Argentina game. So a, a, a rugby tournament that spans so many time zones, I mean, I, I, there's not much sustainability to that when, if we're being honest. So with the URC, I think it solved that problem with regards to now all the teams on pretty much similar time zones and everything. But you know, South Africa is a, is a victim of its own geography. You know, we are never going to be close or, you know, a quick bus drive away from other rugby or big rugby playing um, countries. So there's always going to be an element of, you know, long travel and, you know, distance and are we going to have interaction between fans and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I will, yeah, I happily admit I was a skeptic of, you know, the idea of South teams joining the URC because, I think for one thing, I, I was like, I think we're not really solving the problem that we had because we're going to still be in a competition where there's, you know, a disparity in terms of travel and we're going to have to do all the sort of the traveling up and down. As we've seen, the sprint, the second teams have had to travel, you know, via Qatar with Qatar Airways. We've seen some of the seats that they've had in their flights of them sort of crapping themselves up in the economy as well. So that's obviously not ideal. And, you know, I think the staff and rugby culture has always had some relationship, especially with New Zealand and New Zealand teams. Like 
there's a lot of people like even you know before the sidekick came back um, from readmission are big New Zealand rugby fans and know as much about New Zealand rugby as they as probably most New Zealand locals do so it's like okay we don't really know many teams except for Leinster, Munster, what's Glasgow like what's a Scarlet and all that sort of stuff but you know I think it's definitely proven me wrong in terms of just getting things together. Um, you know, it, I think it worked number one, having, you know, two second teams in the final, in the first edition that got the buy-in of second fans very quickly, because I, I still remember the Aussie started so slow here because we're still coming out of COVID and all those restrictions. But then by the time the, the Stormers and the Bulls made their run to the final, it, it really built up to a crescendo and those great two hosts, you know, big sort of, tournament and, and 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 tournament final because we you know we didn't have that many opportunities to win one when we were playing New Zealand teams. And then the second year I think it also was great that it was a second team still, but now with an overseas team. And Munster I think did their work in obviously bringing their fans here. And the that week in Cape Town was one of the most festive weeks like in in a long time because of just interacting with you know people from Munster and them, them sort of enjoying the country as well and it just showed the potential of this tournament that hopefully at least for big games they, there will always be some form of away contingent there's obviously a lot of South Africans in the United Kingdom as well so there will always be a little piece of South Africa in the, in the stands as well and so there, I think there is definitely a bit of sustainability with the tournament but yeah I don't I don't think, or I don't know how we solve the travel thing because there's, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult solve. I think the way the tournament is scheduled with regards to having multiple tours also makes it difficult and, you know, makes it quite impractical to, you know, you're going up and down and up and down. Even now for next season, I think the Stormers have, you know, a run where they play two, two matches in Europe, then they come back for the Champions Cup at home, then they go back to France for the next Champions Cup game, then they have two matches at home. Then they go for two another two matches in Europe. So it doesn't make sense. And I think especially when there's going to be, I think, a bigger call for sports competitions to be sustainable with their travel and to be a lot more eco-friendly. And it's going to be hard to justify, you know, teams flying up and down pretty much every week or every two weeks. I think that's going to be a big challenge. But And secondly, I think in terms of competition, yeah, we'll need, I think, a, at least one strong Scottish team, which Glasgow seems to be, and at least a strong Welsh and Italian team as well. Like, I think the best that a competition can get is when there's different variety of teams that are strong or competing. And that was the issue with Super Rugby, which, I mean, is not too dissimilar to the issue right now, is you have a very strong team in the Crusaders and a very strong country with the New Zealand countries. And we could only get maybe one team into a semi-final. And Australia could also sneak in one team. And Argentina had the Jaguarians also sneak in once or twice. But, you know, most, for, for a whole country, your interest in the competition ends very early. So, yeah, I think it's needed that we have a strong, you know, team from at least all of the regions. We have, you know, we can start building some rivalries now. You know, Manston Stormers can build a rivalry now and all these other teams and there can be inter-country rivals. And yeah, we can start to get to know and, and learn from each other as well. And hopefully it's also the the, the, the final for Munster also showed that, you know, fans can make it worth their while traveling to South Africa for a week or two weeks and, you know, enjoying, you know, all the nice stuff that you can enjoy in South Africa. So 
hopefully that does build up. But yeah, I think in terms of the general South African public, it, they, yeah, once that first time especially happened and the, there was the Stormers versus Bulls, I think we really brought into it. There's still, I think, an element of, you know, at, with Super Rugby, you know, there's obviously a familiarity, you know, there's the opportunity of playing, you know, New Zealand sides, which are obviously very strong. But yeah, I always say that like Ireland seems to be on New, New Zealand with Leinster Crusaders having a lot of comparisons right now. And you can, you know, go sort of down the line and maybe say Scotland is kind of like Australia and Wales, well, the Welsh teams are like the Sunwolves. But yeah, it's coming to that point now where it feels a lot more familiar. So yeah, hopefully after this season it grows. But um, I think another big concern is that we need to sort out a global calendar. And I think when we talk about the Rugby World Cup squads and the injuries that have happened to key players, I think that's a big part why, because pretty much African players are playing 12 months of the year, almost nonstop, because we're in the rugby championship, we're in the URC, we're in um, the Champions Cup, which means there's no real off-season, which I think will be a big story that develops now in this World Cup and for years to come. That's, that's brilliant take through the whole thing, Talon. Sean, if you wanted to add, are you pro-URC and against the URC, or what's your stance on it? I'm very much for Um I agree with with what Tyler said, and it's the general sentiment around. There's very few people that are um, are still trying to beat the Super Rugby drum in South Africa, um, and I think as a whole, it's great for us. We um, for we are very fortunate that we're in a position where we'll have a generation of players that get to have experience playing Super Rugby in New Zealand and Australia and playing in Europe on a club rugby point of view. And I think that that's a massive, massive bonus for us. Um, global calendar aside, Tyler, you're bang on there. Like it's really going to start hurting people um, eventually. But we've, we're have we in a space now where we've got guys that that have have touched both sides. You know, they, they've seen what Europe's like and they've seen what Super Rugby's like and they've all been playing, doing the same for the same team. So yeah, I'm all for it. And uh, I am looking forward to creating some new um, sort of, enemies in in a, in a good way like uh, uh like the monster stormers rivalry is now be- going to become a thing um and and that's epic and monster came here and took control of cape town and it was amazing and it was a great final now there's got to be payback you know so um you know we want to create other 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 things um we also want to force leinster into sending full strength squads around the world um um yeah we we want to be in that place because at a super rugby, we're going from strength to strength, a week in and week out. You, you, there's no very few opportunities to rest. Um, you know, you don't want to slip up against the Sunwolves when they were playing, but um, you know, Jaguars was 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 a was a battle, and we want to. We believe that that URC will build to that, where Leinster need to, you know, like sides can't rest, um, and that's uh, and to be fair, the sides that have been sending their full strength side week in and week out have won it two years in a row. So there's that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and listen, there's, there's so many different angles on the URC. I know some Welsh fans don't like it. Some love it. You know, some Scottish fans aren't big fans and, and so on and so forth. But it, it is great to see buy-in from South African sides as well, because above all else, they have moved the marker in the league, you know, like before, you could sacrifice a couple of extra games. Whereas now, if you have to go down to South Africa, you're kind of penciling yourself in for two points as opposed to maybe eight or nine. And that's a huge, huge difference. And 
well, we could touch about that on that for for hours, to be honest. Uh, Tal, do you want to jump in there first? Yeah, just very quickly. I think also from a South African perspective, and Sean alluded to it, we're not used to the um, double competition thing. You know, um, yeah. of you know, there's two different priorities. You know, like the Leinster thing, for example, was a bit I think confusing for some South African fans. Like it almost resembled like a football. Uh, thing of like you know if you have your Man City or something like that you focus on the Champions League instead of the FA Cup or whatever the case is so that I think is still something that we're getting used to and it is a almost a fault in a way of the URC that you know because it runs concurrently with this almost bigger competition like there'll always be you know a Leinster will always try to win the bigger competition and that's obviously fair enough for them and you know it works sometimes it works it doesn't work other times as we saw but you know, it. I think the way to make it work maybe is to try and have a bit more of a separation between the two so that we can say like, you know, like, a, like you almost do now with the two weeks with the pools, but I think almost the knockout matches also have to happen like within its own like window instead of it being on and off, on and off, because I think that's where hopefully all teams can play close to their full strengths in both competitions. And, you know, you, there's still, I think, from South African fans, I think there's almost like a basic confusion as to, okay, which competition is this? Wait, why are we playing Leicester Tigers? Aren't they in, aren't they in England? And, you know, that sort of stuff. So it's something that we'll have to get used to for sure. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's a different type of thing because, as Sean said, with Super Rugby, it was a straight-out sprint for, you know, three, four months. And there was a champion at the end. And now there's two competitions and this one looks like this and obviously the Champions Cup, I'm not sure what, <laughs> like in terms of the format, like what, what people in Europe are smoking, but like it's, yeah, it's pretty complicated. So I think just for the casual rugby fan, at least in the African context, and I'm sure, I'm sure not probably even experts in rugby don't know what, what, what in the world they're cooking with the format for the Champions Cup, but there's I think going to be a few more growing pains in terms of explaining, okay, this is this competition, this is why it's important. This is who we're playing. And I, I'd like to point out for any South African listeners, we're not all smoking the same thing when it comes to that format. We are all very confused. It's been 10 years now of this uh, of this roller coaster of the EPCR, and we don't know what's going on. But I suppose a, a nice segue, because speaking of roller coasters, Jack Nienaber named the South African squad just a couple of hours before we before we decided to record, and it is... Um, topsy turvy, I suppose you could say. Imbalanced is another word. <laughs> the headline calls are the inclusion of Munster second row Jean Klein, um, his partner Orgas Neyman, and Ulster or former Ulster number eight Wayne Vermeulen. While Andre Pollard, Lekanyuam, and Ludiaga are all out injured, but are on a nine man standby list. So, first of all, Sean, what's your thoughts on the 33 men that Slavka have assembled? It's a surprise. Um, and it's weird as a South African fan saying that you're surprised by a Springbok squad because um, we kind of, I think, I think historically we are, we are the easiest side to name um, because everyone knows what's coming. Um, so very interesting. I'm everyone that's in there deserves to be in there. Like that, that is the one thing. And I'm me, I'm big about balance, man. And there's a lot of like unbalancing happening on this side. So it's a bit challenging. So I got to wrap my head, my head around it. The big concern for me is naming one out and out fly half. Um, 
obviously we've got options. The other big concern for me is not naming a big third choice hooker. Um, I, for me, want to, I want to have Joseph Dweber playing in games where we can actually rest Bongi Mbanambi and Malcolm Marks. That's the value for me. It's not that I believe he should be getting game time for other reasons. Um, he will build up in the system, but we, we, essentially now are, are having Bongi Manami or Malcolm Marks play in every game in the World Cup because we have to name two hookers. So there's a concern there. Um, other than that, it's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm super excited to see what happens. We've named four scrum offs. Um, there's challenges all around. Um, we've got an amazing set of back three. We've got options at center and some unlikely options because Damien Delendi is going to play 13 this this tournament there's no doubt about it he played a bit for Munster he's played a few times for South Africa so yeah um and I'm very excited to see Jesse Creel um you know everyone he's one of the top guys that everyone loves to hate in South Africa he's he's on that on that list where he's very polarizing um he's really going to put his uh his stamp on things now so I mean he's in great form so it's it's not like it's we're we're guessing here but yeah interesting we've got some that that locking, yo, we've got some options. Like, how, is Ache going to come off the bench because he's performed so well coming off the bench and just dominating? But you know, do we want to start him and Klein together? <laughs> like, there there's so many options. The other space I'm a little bit hesitant uh, is uh, at prop, but um, I think we saw our front rows. I would rather be going with two and a half front rows than than the front rows we've gone on now. I'm, I'm a bit scared of that. Our platform's very important. The other thing that I'm excited to see is is clear as day that Manny Libok is was the second choice fly half is now first choice fly half. Um, against Argentina recently, he had a shaky start but finished well, and that's really what we want to see. For me, he's got to play all the games, which is clear that he's going to. Um, and uh, any mistakes and everything that happens, he's got to rectify. And he's got that mindset. Uh, that's the one thing that I think is quite uh, evident about him. He's He's got a winning mindset. He's got a, a mindset about problem solving the whole time. Like, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? So, yeah, pretty excited. But, I mean, are we going to see a Springbok side that have got three essentially scrum offs playing in the match day 23? We could because they cover wings and fly halves and fullbacks. We're taking the utility back to another level. So surprise, surprise. Welcome to the Springboks. The, the Francois Hugar era has returned in, in that regard. But I just, <laughs> Isn't hold, it? I just want to hold you to a point there. You made, Sean, you mentioned Dale Ende playing 13, possibly. Like, could we see him beside maybe a Willems as a distributor? Or do you see that uh, with alongside Estehazen, who's more of a our man, I know Creel is the, the recognized 13, but if Dale Ende goes to 13, who would you see starting beside him? I actually think we'll see a bit of both, but ideally we we probably want to have um, Vilimsa there. So what might happen is um, uh, I don't necessarily think it'll start that way. If it starts, um, say against Romania, um, we'll probably be running... Um, Willemse at ten, Esterhazen at twelve, and Delendi at thirteen. But in a in a in another game, in a bigger game, what might happen is they might um, take Jesse Creel off and bring on Willemse or Esterhazen to move in either at twelve or will then revert to that 10, 12, 13 as well. Very interesting. I think um, there's been like with 
Delendi playing against, uh, I think it was Canada in 2019. He played 13 against New Zealand when um, uh, when Lukanya Am had that amazing game at wing. Delendi was at 13. And then last year against Italy, a um, couple of games he's moved in in game as well. So there's obviously been that plan and that option. I don't think they ever thought it would unfold in this in this manner. But he's always been there and thereabouts, and they've clearly been working with him on it. But we'll definitely see him at 13 in the tournament, and we'll definitely see him in the 13 jumpers starting a game. So, yeah, it'll be be interesting to see how it works. But, yeah, he's a very different 13. He's an inside running 13. He's going to smash you over. So what's going to happen? The the one thing about Dale Ender at 13 that would really scare me from his monster days is he has a really powerful step, is that like he can really kick off that right foot in particular. And if you're a, a, a distributing 12 type of player, like you, you don't want to see that coming towards you. How like this there's really there's so many actions you could use to describe this squad, but how would how would you describe it? Yeah, you know. I always said that, or I've been saying that the Springboks one thing was consistency and knowing what you're getting from the Springboks, which, I mean, you can say maybe somewhat of a weakness in some cases, but I think it was good in the sense that we always let the challenge down to you, even to naming our side on Tuesday to say, look, here's what we're going to do. You you have to prepare for it, which I think is (laughs) definitely not the case now with this squad. So, yeah, I... I'm still trying to work it out, to be honest. I mean, this we're recording this podcast just a few hours after it was announced. And, you know, obviously, clearly, number one, obviously, the main news being we we have um, we don't have our line-out operator, our first-choice fly-half, and our first-choice outside center in, in our squad. So that already, for any country, but I think especially in this African context, I, I think that already puts us a step behind. And it seems like that, you know, trying to read the tea leaves of what's been said in, last, um, by, in the press by, by the coaches is I think it's ba- it was basically a decision of they're not fit now or they won't be fit at least for the, with the next two warm-up games. So they have to be on standby and if there's an injury, they can come in. And as I understand the Rugby World Cup rules, it's not like a situation where we can go okay, Andre Stays is not really playing well. You can't your arms out back in fitness. It's just switch them. You have to have an injury. So unless either something happens before the deadline for the squads are being submitted to World Rugby, which I think is either to the 7th of August or the 1st of September around there. So either, you know, there can be still changes then, possibly, but in all likelihood, it seems like the those three main players, especially um, Am, Pollard, and uh, Lutiacha, you know, it seems like at the very, it seems like they're out of the regular cup, at least for now, which, you know, I think changes the math and all the equations for South Africa about, you know, how they do in this rugby world cup, because, you know, they're so important, obviously, for different, for different reasons. I think with the author, for example, you know, his ability to run the line out is clear. And I think there is a clear difference when he's not there and just, you know, the efficiency of the lineup does go down. So, Bodambi and Marx are now going to be working with either probably Sneiman or Mostert who, or Ori, who they haven't been working with. And they can't really, there's a lot of moving parts here. So Mostert is now, I think, more of a second choice um, blindside flank, more than he is a lock option at the moment. 
So what that probably means, especially with the makeup of the squad, is you can obviously, if he's in the team, you can still call the lineouts. But I think in most cases in our big games, he's only going to play maybe the last 20 minutes. So that means now the lineup calling is now up to either Snayman or Ori, who haven't really been calling the lineup for the swing box, well, ever, pretty much, because they both haven't really played that much in the last four years, never mind um, in the past as well. So then that's a problem. Number 13 for Kanyo Am is less of a problem, as we talked about now with Sean, Jesse Creel, probably one of the best um, uh, defenders at outside centre, which I think is needed against um, England, um, Ireland and Scotland especially. I mean, Ireland with all of their patterns and moves and everything, you need a strong outside centre or they'll cook you up. So I would play Creel at 13 for that. And Scotland with the Hugh Pelotu and Finn Russell looping around, like, again, you need a strong 13. So I don't mind that loss too much. Lukanyam is obviously great as a defender himself and is obviously just amazing as an attacker. So we do lose that in terms of the attack. But I think the defense, especially for the for the group stages, will be needed there from Creel. The Pollard loss, I think, in some ways, it's not too bad because, I mean, look, Manny LeBoc has been probably the best fly half in the URC the last two seasons. He's a good player. He is a good tactical kicker. He's obviously fantastic running the ball. He does kick his, you know, his, his goal kicks in the clutch as well. Like he's able to do all the things that you'd want from a fly half. The two things are obviously experience. Number one, um, he hasn't really played for the Springbok. He's only six caps. He hasn't obviously played with these particular players as well. So he has to now build up a relationship with the clerk as his nine, with Damien Dialendi as his 12 which, you know, you don't really want that to be happening now. And I mean, unlike with, because like, I was, we were talking about it before the pod about, you know, if Ireland are Sexton, I mean, yes, Crowley would come in and he has a similar number of caps, but there's more combinations there because, you know, it's not, I mean, De Klerk and Dialendi are coming from two Japanese teams. So Crowley at least can sort of build a relationship with, you know, links the players that he's seen in, in the squad. You know, there's going to be a few monster players like Connor Murray or um, Greg, um, um, Craig Casey as well at nine possibly. So, you know, these things make it a bit more difficult. So that also means we only have one recognized fly half, which I think is an absolute wild thing to do in a Rugby World Cup squad, Thank which you. I do not understand, honestly. I, and yeah, I think, and, you know, with the, I think overall, I think the coaches almost put themselves in a box with the squad that they picked in the first place. You know, we picked five scrum halves in the original training squad. And it seemed like there was a reluctance to go outside of the training squad or outside of the people that were picked, you know, or made it to the final squad in that last week. Because it doesn't make sense to me that we have four scrum halves and we're saying that two of those scrum halves can cover wing when we've picked four wings when we had Alti Yankees was in the squad um, and obviously has played with the Springboks for the last six years, knows the structures, like obviously might not be at his best right now, but, you know, he played Pro D2 um, for half of last season. Like he's got rugby under his belt. Like why not have him in the squad, you know, if it basically means Pollard isn't making it. And, and at the very least, we have a backup option. If for whatever reason, either LeBoc isn't playing well, or he gets injured, or whatever the case is. Because I think we've introduced a lot of risk into our team now. To the point that, I mean, look, with 
I think when playing Ireland and Scotland, like now we're clearly maybe the underdog team, at least against Ireland, if not against Scotland as well. There's things we can do to problem solve. I think our first choice 23 is still good, if not very good. And I think we'll still compete well against most teams. So the problems there are a bit limited. There's a few weaknesses, but the problems there are limited. I think we have introduced a bit of unnecessary risk with our second choice team against Tonga and Romania. So as Sean mentioned, we haven't picked a third choice hooker, which means that Dion Ferry has to play some minutes there at hooker. He hasn't played hooker since, I think, 2018. So if, let's say, he can't throw or we have really issues with throwing, I mean, yes, Tonga's not maybe known for their, you know, set piece, but that's obviously one way of, you know, beating us. Now, Willems, Damien Willems will probably plays 10 for most of that game, but if something happens to him, it's either De Klerk or Jaden Hendrickson that's playing 10. It's probably someone like Grant Williams or Kobus Reinach playing at wing. Like, there's just too much risk that's being introduced that's unnecessary in the team right now, which is why I think, and what Sean was mentioning now, I think I agree with him in terms of the structure. We need, I'm a, I'm a person that likes structure and having like a bit of a, you know, picking specialists in their position. I mean, yes, you need utilities for a World Cup squad. But having, so we have two hookers, four to five players that play lock regularly, three fetches on uh, open side flankers. One of the open side flankers, we want them to play hooker, which they haven't done in three years. We have four strong halves. Two of them we think can play wing. Four wings who are backing up, who are being backed up by the two other strong halves that can play wing, which doesn't really make sense. And then one fly half. Like, yeah, the things aren't connecting. I don't think, you know, I think Springbok fans have been very much willing to believe there's always a master plan. I'm not sure there's a master plan, to be honest. Or if there is, it's way beyond my thinking. And do you know what? Rassi Erasmus will be the greatest coach ever if he can win a rugby World Cup with this squad. And I don't think there's a way of just cheating the system if we see Pollard is back in full fitness and then we can sort of bring him back into the team. So, I mean, there will be injuries, of course, but it's not a sure thing that Um recovers with his knee injury because it's a long-term issue or Pollard recovers from his calf injury because that's also been a long-term issue. So I think them not being in the team is an admission that in all likelihood they're not making the squad or they're not going to play uh, have a feature in the Rugby World Cup. And the only way that they maybe do have a feature is that if we go as long as possible. So saying all of that, like... You know, I think our margin for error is a lot bigger than it was, you know, a few days ago. Because I always thought, you know what, the Springboks are the least likely of, you know, all the teams to just fall out of the group stages, for example, because, you know, we have the game plan and we have the players that will at least get us, you know, the three out of four wins that we need in order to qualify for the quarterfinals. And then obviously anything can happen in a, in a knockout game. But now, you know, not only against Ireland and Scotland do we, um, introduce risk. I mean, the Tonga and the Romania games aren't, I'm not saying we're going to lose those games, but they're now not really foregone conclusions because, again, we've introduced a bit of risk that I'm not really happy with. So, yeah, I think as a, as a, as a South African rugby watcher, you, you look at that squad and I think there's a bit of heavy breathing. There's going to be a few nightmares um, for South African fans. Like, it definitely does um, put us on the back foot for the Rugby World Cup. And, you know, you, there's, it's never 
a good sign for a team that wants to win the Rugby World Cup to have any questions or lots of questions coming into the tournament. Most teams that win the Rugby World Cup are settled and they're winning. We're not really settled right now. Our winning has been a bit up and down. Or you're the Springboks every 12 years, and unfortunately, it's not 2031. So we have a few issues here. Yeah, that's a brilliant account as well, but I'm not going to feign sympathy as an Irish fan who's in South Africa. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I was expecting, I didn't know this call was going to be announced today when I was recording with you guys, but like, I was expecting this to be one of those podcasts that strikes fear into the listeners. Maybe not as much right now, but we will get into that pool, pool B. I said it before, there's probably two pools of deaths. As much as we say it's only one, it's probably two. Um, Ireland and Scotland are there, Tonga and Romania, as Tala is now afraid of, it would seem. <laughs> like, it's it's the big teams. It's three of the top, or, yeah, three of the top five teams in the world as it, as it stands. Tala, I'll, I'll start with you here. Like, how do you see the pool panning out in general? Oof. It's a very spicy pool, I think, for many reasons. So, obviously, Ireland have been great, especially in the last two years. We know what they've done. Um, and I'm sure your listeners are very much well aware of, obviously, how great they've been the last two years. And I think what Farrell has added that maybe um, Schmidt did not have is... I think there's a bit more variation in the game plan. There's a bit more like if plan A doesn't work, we know we can buckle down and, and, and take it up, like take it up with our forwards. I think there's a bit more, you know, uh, you know, a bit, of, a bit more grit in the forwards and maybe that's the influence of Polo Connell. And of course, I think Ireland has the best attack in the world. So seeing all the patterns that they run, like as a rugby fan, obviously, it will hurt a little bit seeing it against the Springboks, but as a rugby fan, it's just absolutely brilliant just seeing how, you know, Sexton, Henshaw, Ringrose and, and, and the crew are just brilliant at, you know, breaking up defences and, 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 and breaking them wide open. So it'll be, I think Ireland has set themselves up to have a really good run in the Rugby World Cup. Like, obviously, it's probably a bit of Irish, you know, irony or luck that you have your best team ever, but you have the worst road for rugby world cup ever as well. So, you know, you can't really win at all, but there's no reason why I think there's definitely respect and maybe some fear in some ways that Ireland is a good team and they can really obviously go far in this rugby world cup. And there's no reason why, um, well, there's yeah, not a real reason why we can't expect or we can't we, we shouldn't be too surprised, I should say, that they go all the way. Like there's no reason you can't see them beating South Africa, New Zealand, and France. It's just now a matter of can they do it in consecutive weeks in a row? And what happens if they lose one or two key players, which you know is the inevitability of a rugby world cup? But yeah, there's no there's no real reasons apart from that. Scotland is uh yeah, a bit of a lucky packet side I think um, in our talks and rugby bits like at some stages you know we're a bit high on Scotland I've been high on Scotland like I think two years ago I thought okay they're gonna get second or third in the six nations they're gonna really be consistent now and yeah Scotland as soon as you think you figure them out and believe them will then disappoint you and we saw it on Saturday in the regular cup warm-up game they had the most ordinary um, first half ever. They looked like they were not really bothered in playing rugby. Then the second half, they just went out like absolute titans and they tore apart France. So 
you know, it's such a dangerous team for a few reasons. Of course, we know how good they are in attack. And I mean, if Ireland has the best attack in the world, I think Scotland's at least in that top three or four because, you know, there's a lot that you can do with, obviously, Finn Russell. There's a great understanding that Hugh Jones and Sion Blow to have, and they'll that test the defence constantly. And I think they've the one thing that they've gained with um, Stuart Hogg being retired with Blake Kinghorn is just size. It's a big team. Like, you have Van der Merwe and Blake Kinghorn running, on, uh, running at your wings. Like, you know, they're going to break tackles. They're going to beat defenders. They're going to, you know, make meters most of the time. And obviously, Darcy Graham, he might be small, but he does, that's a person that always will beat defenders as well. So that's a great attack. And they've really, I think, grown in their defense as well. So they can, you know, you know, stay with teams and, and give themselves a chance. They can sort of play on the counterattack as well. They've got a really good kicking game as well with Finn Russell. So, you know, it's two teams that I think, um, are good, number one. And number two, I think with both Ireland and Scotland with their attacks, I think they are teams that can be set up to try and manipulate the Springbok rush defence. So, as you said, Scotland plays it really flat and they throw a lot of options at the box, which is probably the best thing to do um, because you force, you know, especially the outside centre to make a call and to try and commit to that call. So, you know, someone like Creel, uh, will then have to be like, okay, am I taking Hugh Jones? Am I taking Tupelot? Am I taking Russell? Obviously the wrong choice and someone's there on the outside. Or they can obviously bunch up the defense and then release someone out wide. So they're really good at that. And Ireland has, you know, similar strengths as well. You know, I think Scotland obviously don't have the strength that Ireland has up front. So there is an opportunity to take them on. So, I mean, the way the, the matches are set up, I mean, yeah, Scotland has the first matches a bit... You know, as as I say, they can go really good or really bad because, you know, if Scotland sort of decide, hey, this is England, we need to play our best rugby like we do against England most times. Like, yeah, that can be a concern. So there is definitely a situation where South Africa, you know, lose that first game and now that Ireland game becomes very important and basically staying and surviving in the in the competition. And as you discussed with African squad, there's now a lot more questions than answers. So I think for both teams, the, the main thing is how do you manipulate the Springbok defense? And we've seen with Ireland in the game last year, they really use the inside pass well because we over, you know, fall in defense, you know, we're trying to get numbers. And then if you put in a nice inside pass at the right time, you'll always find a gap with the Springbok defense, unfortunately. And then if you're able to just at least match the Springboks up front. So get some parity in the scrums, don't lose too many scrum penalties, stop their rolling mall, have your own rolling mall going. I mean, Ireland showed in, in November that they can at least stay in that fight and can, you know, stay in that physical fight with the Springboks. The, the big thing with the Springboks is the cost of beating them, which means that you're going to be beaten up basically for, for, for 80 minutes. So that will be obviously a risk for them. But yeah, I think, how the pool set up. I mean, look, Tonga, I don't think is really much of a threat. I think they'll have a half where they scare a team, but most teams should be able to deal with them. Romania's going to be interesting because from what I've seen and heard, like obviously from like people like Squid Rugby is that they have a really good forward pack and they have added a bit more flair to their sort of traditional game. So I don't think that will also be a straightforward um, game. I think this will be the World Cup of all the fifth place teams being relatively competitive. So I don't think we'll see 80 mils and all that sort of stuff. I think it'll be closer games where 
you know, maybe they run away with it in the second half. So look, uh, I, let's see how, you know, the teams go in the next few weeks and maybe let's see how maybe the squads shape up for all the sides. But yeah, I think there's definitely now with the squad that's been announced and the losses that Safka has, like Scotland should feel all the more confident in, in making it out the pool. So yeah, I think both, all three of those teams um, should fancy themselves to make it out the pool. And, you know, we, you know, once you make it out of that pool of death, then you have to negotiate, obviously, a really tough quarterfinal likely against France or New Zealand. So that's a great prize for making out of the pool of death. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, I was speaking on our Scottish preview pod there, which went live today, Tuesday, and they said we could easily, you know, beat Scotland or beat South Africa, beat Ireland and lose to Tonga. And <laughs> I think for Ireland fans, it's like we could lose South Africa and Scotland very easily. You know, mm. in tight games, especially now with red cards and all that, and there's also the factor that you could just take have France on a good day in a quarterfinal, no matter which team it is. You know, you could face them on a good day. Likewise, New Zealand, and it's it's interesting to say the least. Um, Sean, how do you see it going? Who do you think is is coming out of the the first Hula Death? Yeah, it's very interesting, and it all sort of settles down onto who out of South Africa and Scotland can best prepare for the opening game of the World Cup. I think that's the big thing. There's You've got extra time to prepare for that game. That's a big game. You um, you know, that's where your focus is. Interestingly enough is Ireland finish with uh, the Springboks and then Scotland. And they lost two games. And that with, is... With the week in between, I should probably throw in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's the two pressure games back-to-back that I think will be quite interesting. But I, I did forget that they had a week. So there's an extra time, extra bit of time to prepare and all that. So very um, interesting times ahead. In terms of what's going on, I, I really believe that South Africa are going to make it out the group. Um, and then I think that's that Scottish, uh, Scottish part, I mean, Cook's um, part of the rugby bits. He said it all the time. He says, Scotland are going to cause an upset. And he doesn't know if it's for Scotland or against Scotland. And he's bang on. Like, you know, they, they, they really could go out... I mean, Scotland could go out and beat South Africa and Ireland and then lose like to Romania and Tonga and still not make it. You know, <laughs> like it's a bit it's a bit interesting. So I think I think Scotland um are gonna fall just a little bit short. But one thing that I'm I'm very sure of is that it's gonna go down to a points difference and it's gonna be crazy. Someone's mm-hmm. missing out by um a missed penalty or something like that. There's, it's going to be even on points for second place. You never know. Like it could be all even on points for the for the first three places uh, for top first spots. So there's going to be some broken hearts, but uh, South Africa are going to make it out uh, with Ireland. Um, as boring as that sounds, it's uh, I, I feel that that's where it's going to go. Yeah, no, I'll take that gladly. <laughs> gladly, I'll take that out. Yes. <laughs> um, it's been a great chat but I do need to get final predictions as well so obviously Sean you have South Africa getting out of the pool but from there <sighs> and like we haven't a clue what's going to happen to be honest you know France and New Zealand as I said they could take you on their day so Sean I'll come to you first are South Africa going to get the job done where are they going to finish if they don't and who do you see winning them Oh, I hate I hate these and I wish I could blame load shedding and cut out but um, I'll, I'll stick through it <laughs> Um, I'm, I feel South Africa are going to go far. So 
if we don't make the final, it's going to be by ball here. Um, something's going to happen. It's going to be a penalty. There's going to be a very, very tight game somewhere along the line. Um, most of them will be, but I think it's, if they don't make the final, it's going to be by a little bit. Very interestingly enough, I always look at it like which, which, which teams can win three on the trot. Um, and that list is getting longer and longer. Um, you know, you can add Ireland to that list now, you can add France to that list now, but it was always South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. And now, you know, like Australia probably still in it. England can, can win three in a row. So it's it's a very long list. So it's it's quite challenging and it all depends on how the focus is for the quarters, semis, and final. But Ireland, um, I did something today um, and upset a few of the Irish just by pointing out that it's... Uh, Ireland have to win five tier one games in a row that are almost knockouts. And I don't think I've seen that before in a world cup. So if they go on to win it, well done. And they flip and deserve it, you know? Um, But yeah, I think South Africa, I don't know who's going to win it, um, but I think South Africa will be a very close, close finalists. Um, And I'd love to say we'll go on and win it, but I hate, I hate making these things, these calls, but we're in for one of the best world cups in in the history of the game, yeah, that's that's as good of a call as Anthony. I think we are in for one of, for a great World Cup. To be honest, Tala, same question to you: Are South Africa going to do it? And if not, who's it going to be? No, I I can't. At least, yeah, unless something changes with like the squad makeup or other teams also like donate their first choice fly half and outside centre lock um, to the cause and make it a fair fight, like. You know, I think, you know, I, sometimes you must read the tea leaves and what they're saying, or actually just read what, what you know, evidence and precedent says. So, I mean, so in the Women's World Cup right now, um, you, the USA was the defending champions, and they just had a pretty average, you know, four years up until now. Like, they didn't win the, world, the, the gold medal at the Olympics. The team didn't really know what their game plan was. They had a lot of um, serious... Um, uh, injuries um, to, to key players and they eventually lost because, you know, yes, you can be a team with like an aura and a, a way of winning and everything, but eventually like those things end. So I think, unfortunately for the for Zyken fans, I think that's probably the end for us in this run. I would probably say quarterfinal, but yeah, even that is, yeah, like I said now, I think the, the, where I was maybe at 90%, I think I'm now at like 70, 60% that that's happening. So unfortunately, quarterfinal exit. I think, I think I'm sticking with France for a World Cup win. I think most consistent team in the last four years got probably the majority of the best players in the world, have the best player in the world as well, and they're at home. And I can't see the French TV directors allowing them to leave the World Cup <laughs> without the trophy. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's understandable. Um, lads, it has been a pleasure. To be honest, it's been it's been really good, and thankfully, you haven't scared the the lights out of us uh, as Irish fans here at home. <laughs> For those listening, there's still more to come. I'll cross it over now to part two, which is with the Roar Rugby's Harry Jones. So welcome back to part two of this bumper South African preview. Joining me now to look ahead to South Africa's tournament is co-host of the Roar Rugby Pod, Harry Jones. Welcome on, Harry. How's it? How's it? How are you doing? All good now. All good. Harry, as with all new guests, I have to start by asking, are you excited for the World Cup? 
Oh man, I'm I'm pumped. I think my dreams are mostly about the World Cup right now. They're either ex- ex- in terribly erotic, exotic dreams, or they're um, some kind of World Cup related uh, nightmare or uh, or or end- happy ending. <laughs> and I let everyone at home determine that as they will. <laughs> but given you're a South African co- you're a South African following, but you cover an awful lot of Australia, I I felt like it might be best just good run through the rugby championship as a whole as well kind of from that perspective and would you mind just taking us through how it unfolded because you know I record New Zealand pod halfway through and things like that so just just your thoughts on the rugby championship 2023 and South Africa's second best finish yeah so I think every team had a very different mission uh there were the three settled teams we'll call them uh checker driven uh foster driven and Erasmus driven that I had plans in place for a long time. Uh, maybe Checker would be the, the least of those, but still he's been in place and he has his themes. He has, um, he, he was trying to use the rugby championship to explore what type of game Argentina could put on the field in, in France. And I think he left with uh, some good solutions. So in that sense, you'd say he ticked the box. Uh, you know, Argentina didn't win as much as they wanted to, but they were able to go to Australia and put a game plan on the pitch that worked uh, away from home. And uh, winning away from home is going to be the key theme here. I think for New Zealand, they had the trauma of early 2022 uh, visited upon them by you guys and then perpetuated in um, in, in the first match against the Springboks. Uh, and then from that on, you had a tight five, you had a mall defense. So I think rugby championship for 2023 for New Zealand was all about reinforcing that. You know, do we have that tight five in place? Uh, they probably should have mothballed Brody Retallick a little bit better, but the rise of Scott Barrett sort of mitigated that problem. And then they were trying to find their Jerome Kano. And so they were able to find that in Shannon Frizzell. They also really wanted to see a better Bowden Barrett. And they saw that. So I think, you know, New Zealand tick box, whether they won or lost the rugby championship wasn't the issue. Uh, All Blacks never like to give trophies back and they want to have all the trophies. But more importantly, it was, um, did we make sure that we can put a hard pack on the field against Ireland in a quarterfinal or the box in a quarterfinal? And could we take the French? I think for the Springboks, it was a long plan. You know, this was the, this was the World Cup that Rossi Erasmus and Jacques Ninabra thought they could win. 2019 was a bonus because of what happened with New Zealand and England. Um, but now there was always this thought that we could put three cup winner, three cup, three world cup players on the field. And you know, there's some injuries that have a question mark around that. But the thought was you have seven or eight guys that had really been in semifinal against New Zealand in 2015, won it in 2019, and then go the distance this time for Mullen, uh, Etzebeth, uh, Malherba, um, Louis de Jager, um, Pollard. I mean, you have, you have some people that actually can actually, the Dialende, Dialende would be a three cup guy. So I think for the Springboks, it was, could we do that? And then could we bring a Monty Lubbock, an Efan Ruiz, um, Grant Williams or Jaden Hendricks? Is there enough new blood that could come in? I think you would say, especially on the basis of the Loftus winning over Australia, that you saw that the Springboks said, we can play a more counter-attacking rugby. It's still not going to be high phase like Ireland, but counter-attack. Um, so I think you would say Springboks would have dearly loved to have had a better display in New Zealand. But I think uh, you could say th- those three teams felt good. Now, Australia is the, that's the, uh, 
the anomaly. Australia was coming in with a hot um, new plan, um, mix and match, smash and grab, as Eddie says, and it is not clear that they were able to accomplish their purposes. There were signs of life in the final one, but it's still 0-4, nine tries against 18, five cards in four matches, one discovery, Tom Hooper, one reassurance, Carter Gordon, but the rest of it looks a little bit too much like Dave Rennie, which is try harder, tackle harder, hope for the best, and our draw will save us. Yeah, that's that's a pretty expansive review, so thanks very much. And like ultimately, New Zealand did win, South Africa second, Argentina third, and Australia fourth. And it, it really could have went a different way too. It could have been Argentina finishing last at the expense of Australia coming third and, and so on and so forth. But probably the, the big storyline since compiling the notes in particular, so I'd add it in there, is South Africa named their 33-man squad, or as you allude to, it's essentially a 42-man squad with the nine players held in reserve. Um, what's your thoughts on what Razi and, and Nina Bar have put together? Yeah, so they had a contractual agreement with a super sport, uh, which you know owns the rights to Springbok TV locally. So that was a domestic performance to time it at 8 August. There was no need to announce your team on 8 August, right? That was, but that was in the works for a year. Um, I mean, production all day, uh, you know, players walking across the pitch. There was also a political angle to that. There was sort of a, a theater performance. Um, but there's no way that Andre Pollard, Lourdes Yager, and Lucanio Am are necessarily out of it, right? There's a greater chance that some of the nine on standby will play in a knockout match than there are uh, some of the 33. I mean, some of the 33 are there, like, literally as placeholders. One of our clues for that is that there's four scrum offs and only two hookers. In the standby, there's a hooker. Uh, there's no way to, there's no reason to take four scrum offs. They're not stupid. So there's actually just an ability to put a performance on for the 8 August. People have good vibes. Some guys get to walk across the stage, have a blazer on and a cap on, uh, and they're in the mix. But they, I, they might be the tackle bag holders. And then you have, you know, seasoned professionals, vice captain, Pollard, uh, defensive leader, um, line-out caller, Diager. Those guys are absolutely in the mix. So I think 42 is the number that was named. And then I think your question is right on, which is, is there enough in that 42? Uh, I do think that there's plenty. Um, number one, all the World Cups in rugby are always uh, won by the team with the depth, um, particularly in tight five, you need to have a lot of locks. Locks go down in tournaments. Uh, props go down in tournaments. We know this. That's statistically uh, verifiable. The second thing is sometimes even they don't go down by injury, they might be suffering. They might be spent. They might be exhausted. So the idea of a bomb squad is nothing new. It's just got a new name. But England, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Australia, when they've won, They've been the ones that had the deepest actual, the deepest uh, team. Uh, so this team, the Springboks have named, has depth. And it, it maybe more than more importantly, it has versatility. You could accuse some past Springbok teams of having too much of a one-note flavor. This one can play Lubok, URC-type rugby, you know, Stormer rugby. This one can also pivot and play more what we'll call um, fullback coming in the line and being the first receiver, you know, Willemsa, Villarue, and also can play uh, with Pollard or Lebuck on the field uh, and Faf de Klerk playing off nine or Hendrickson playing off nine. It can also play uh, more of a Dupont 
French aspect um, and keeping someone moving backward, momentum. I think that was the big lesson that Ninaver and Erasmus learned from the World Cup and from the Lions series is, you're all well and good, but we better be able to switch to something else. So that you see that in Sydney 2022. You see that in um, early 2023 in uh, Loftus. And you even see shoots of it against Argentina in Argentina. So this, uh, this idea that we're going to, we're going to actually take some of those long kicks and we're going to build a counter attack a la New Zealand, not a, not a haphazard, you know, but an actual a framework where we're going to put Aronsa, Colby, um, and these guys into space. And there's deadly finishers, but the problem for South Africa was always, did they create enough opportunity? And I think this team is built to do a little bit more on the edges uh, whilst still putting a heavy, hard, you know, the hardest pack in world rugby onto the field. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's certainly a, a squad that will raise a lot of question marks, but I suppose until we get to that first game against Scotland, we don't really know for sure. But that game is the first the, the first marquee game in Pool B. And the remarkable thing about this side of the draw is you got the top five sides in the world, in the world rankings, all there. Like you've got South Africa, who are fourth, Ireland first, Scotland fifth in Boot B, mouthwatering prospect of a quarterfinal against France in third, or New Zealand second in the quarters. First of all, Harry, how do you see Pool B unfolding? Yeah, so it's very, very interesting. Some of the big guns for South Africa will only probably come back in uh, for the Ireland match. So there's a lot of building here for Romania and Scotland, and there's a perception, at least, that a Lubbock-led um, side could could almost be better against Scotland than um, than than the other. But then against Ireland, you need you actually need the field general. Um, I know Ireland is obviously the best team in rugby right now. It has the best um, style. It has it has the possession type rugby that fits the way the referees are looking at it. Uh, the ball and play statistic has been rising across the world and it will be highest at this world cup than ever more rocks uh less set piece so the power game is less um wrecking of ireland than maybe was in in history however in the knockout matches where leinster has come undone or in matches where as against the wallabies in 2022 and the springboks in 2022 and to some extent how the french play ireland there's still this idea that you could this beautiful, pretty bicycle, um, you can still wreck the spokes. You can still ram a battering ram into it. And then let's see how you ride your bicycle now. So until that's solved, I don't know. I don't know if Scotland cannot do that to Ireland anyway. So I think Ireland's got Scotland's number and they can play any way they want. As long as Ireland puts the best Irish display on the field, they have Scotland. They have Scotland mentally, they have Scotland physically, and they have Scotland with uh, speed on the edges, their long kicking game with their wings that kick and their uh, midfield is just better. I mean, obviously it'll be entertaining. Scotland can score. Ireland can score more. I think the, you know, obviously everyone's waiting for the tasty matchup between Ireland and Springboks. And there it's interesting because we don't really know in their heart of hearts, truth serum applied, who they'd rather really play in the quarterfinals. I mean, I would think that New Zealand would prefer to play South Africa than Ireland because New Zealand is set up, you know, for 150 years to play Springboks and Ireland has kind of got some mystical power of them. I know the box are not afraid of France. I mean, to, 
to us, the French just do what locks do, but we do it better. They have to even borrow our locks. So I don't think when it really comes down to it, when it's like, when it's really on the line and we're just going to go into war and we're just bashing heads and smashing knuckles, I don't really think the French bother us. Whereas New Zealand does. <laughs> Quite frankly, they always favor. So I, I don't know what Ireland really thinks about that in the heart of hearts either. I would say, um, you know, at home, the French should be favored against Ireland. So I think Pool B is interesting because they're playing for um, for a win that may not be the win you want. Like, do you want it to finish top or not? I don't know. Um, I would say no one's going to try and, you know, tank the match. So, you know, uh, most World Cups are won by the team that doesn't lose even one match. So we have one exception. Uh, the matchup between Ireland and Springboks is absolutely fascinating. Such a clash of styles, a true, you know, boxer puncher versus a, 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 a boxer versus a puncher. Um, but I mean, there's, there's some evidence of like when they played in Dublin, I was there last year, Ireland only developed two clean breaks in the whole match. That's actually very unusual. And what the Springboks is, they took away the entire right side of Ireland's attack. They just said, you're never coming here. And nothing happened on the right side. You look at a heat map. There's like 25 attempts that come to nothing. The one break that happens on the left happens because Kaylin Doris goes out of touch, scoops the ball brilliantly, unbelievable play, gets it in, and then the whole field is spaced just right. Um, and, and so that's hard to replicate in a World Cup knockout match. You know, like You hope that you can find a way to space the field that way. Springboks obviously come in and say, yeah, but in that match, we didn't have, you know, a proper kicker. So we were turning down kicks that are right in front of goal or even ones that were sort of, you know, 60 percenters, we wouldn't take them. Well, that may be where they are again, because Pollard might still be out. So, um, yeah, I think of all the matches in the pool, I think that's the that's the best pool match in World Cup 2023. Not New Zealand, France, because I think that's so early on, it's almost like, you know, melodramatic. I think Ireland, Scott, uh, Ireland, South Africa will be the match that tells us more about who's going to win the entire thing than any other match in the pools. Yeah, after teeing it up really nicely, I might just clip that and have it ready for for the week of that match because it is it is going to be fascinating. It is going to be great, and then I take it then you're predicting South Africa and Ireland probably to come out of the pool. Yeah, I don't think Scotland has. So Scotland's unfortunate. I think you put Scotland on the other side of the draw and they're looking at a very nice run deep into the World Cup. They have a well-settled team. They have a dangerous midfield. They have, you know, one of the best tricksters in rugby uh, at 10. Um, their pack is proper hard, but it's not deep. So, you know, most of the time in a World Cup, you lose a couple, maybe two or three of your forwards to some sort of injury, even if it's a niggle. Uh, or you have someone at sort of 95% who's hobbling around and going anyway. That's Scotland's problem. They're going to get banged up by uh, by Tonga, by the box, and then and then they're going to have to sort of limp into some of their crucial matches. Um, there's no evidence that shows me Scotland can win uh, three or even four tough matches in a row. They, they haven't done it. So yeah. you know, where can we see the evidence? I don't know. Ireland can. Ireland has almost forgotten how to lose. So. Um, they do that because they have uh, interchangeable depth. Um, you know, is Conan that much worse than Doris? Uh, if Underfleer is not really on his game, don't we see Omani pick it up? 
Baron can play, Ty Baron can play four, five, six, 12, 15. Um, it seems like you can throw no name players. The rest of the world doesn't know Hugo Keenan. He might be one of the best unknown players in the whole world. Um, you know, you say Henshaw and Ringrose, that's the thing. But what about um, Bandiaki? I mean, it doesn't really matter. It seems like you can throw anyone with one exception, which is, um, you know, the general. So, and it would be an effing disgrace uh, if we couldn't see Sexton up against Pollard. I hope that doesn't happen. I want to see a three-cupper versus a three-cupper with all the marbles at a pool match. And I want to see Sexton, um, you know, going up against Maunga for revenge, you know, the revenge. I want all that to, to happen. So if Ireland can stay healthy, they clearly have the wood on um, on Scotland, their fellow Celts. But uh, Springboks just have too much of a power game in a knockout situation, which is what these games start to feel like, right? Even if they're pool matches, it's like a knockout at some point. There's no bonus points that matter. It's It's just, you know, can I stuff you in the mouth enough? So I think that's... That's the problem with Scotland. They got the worst possible draw in history of World Cups. That's fair. And unfortunately, like there is, we're kind of over time because of the earlier podcast I, I did with Rugby Bits. So I'll just get into predictions, Harry. Are South Africa, the three-time winners, are they going to make it four in October? Or do you see it going in a different direction? If so, who would it be? Uh, New Zealand is the favorite. New Zealand should win this. Um, they're always a favorite in every World Cup, but that's for a reason. It's not because bookkeepers are mad. Um, I think New Zealand will overcome the French. Uh, if they're up against the box, they would be favored. Springboks are underdogs to repeat. They're a hard out. I think everyone will find out the hard way that it's difficult to knock the Springboks out in this type of tournament. But I think the Kiwis know how to do it. So either in a quarterfinal stage or in a later in the tournament, I think the All Blacks uh, are the favorites. Springboks are probably, um, along with Ireland, to me, um, right there as second favorites. I don't believe the French. I don't. I think they're too dependent on Dupont. I think um, their long kicking game um, will come unstuck, and I think there's no one like the French fans to turn on the home team when anything goes wrong. I think this there'll be some way they'll find out to lose this that's a good assessment and i think you might be the first person to come on here and not tip france to at least go close to going all the way so that's it's interesting you know styles and fights and all that and for everyone at home i i hope you've enjoyed this this bumper two pattern a proper bomb squad as i said at the start um in true south african fashion harry thank you very very much for joining me it has been great fun this afternoon and for those at home, that is Pool B covered, although we will be looking at Ireland, Romania and Tonga all at a later date. And we kick off our Pool C coverage on Saturday as I talk to Harry's Australian podcast friend, Brett McKay, and Mitch Evans to talk about the Wallabies. So thanks so home to everyone for listening. Um, if you do like what you see or hear, please do subscribe and you'll find the links for my channels, for Harry, for Rugby Bits, everything all down below. And I would really recommend them all. But for now, and until next time, take it easy.